True sacrifice implies trust or faith in something beyond our mortal capacity to comprehend. When the prophet Elijah asked for a great sacrifice from a widow and her son, great miracles flowed into their lives. One of the purest testaments of God's individualized love for each of his children is the individualized nature in which he communicates. When Elijah became overwhelmed and full of sorrow at the wickedness around him, God connected with him again, not through wind, not through earthquake, and not through fire, but through a still, small voice. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I think about a sacrifice that I've had to make for the Lord or for His church. I really think about when um, I was deployed to Iraq with the Army back in 2005. I was in a calling that was very demanding. And it, it was hard, but it was nice to know that my family was there to support me and Heavenly Father was there to support me. Sometimes I'd be out on patrol all night with, with my company and I wouldn't get back until right before church, just enough time to take a shower and head, head to church. And just, although it wasn't a huge sacrifice, but just, you know, being up for, you know, 30, 40 hours and then go to church, uh, to make that sacrifice to attend my meetings to partake of the sacrament really helped me to, um, you know, feel more love for uh, the folks that I was attending church with and also uh, to feel love through the Holy Ghost from my Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here today. The discussion topics come from our studies in 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19. And the first topic is an invitation to sacrifice. And the second topic is the Lord often speaks in quiet, simple ways. And to help us with our discussion, we want to first welcome one of our scholars, Luke Drake. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Uh, Luke is the director of seminaries and institutes in Tampa, Florida. He has a passion for ancient scripture, and he is pursuing the, his PhD in ancient Mediterranean religions from the University of North Carolina. That's right. We're excited to have you and excited to learn from you. I'm excited too. Thank you. And seated next to Luke, we have our special guest, Jeff Bradshaw. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Jeff works as a senior research scientist. He's an Old Testament scholar and expert, and he and his wife have served two missions to the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. They have four children and 15 grandchildren. I bet that keeps you pretty busy, Jeff. Uh, plenty busy, yep. <laughs> <laughs> as we get into uh, this first topic, an invitation to sacrifice. Luke, do you want to give us just some overview? Catch us up. We've skipped a lot of chapters. Sure. So just as a reminder, uh, you know, there used to be a united kingdom you know, under David, but then uh, a united monarchy, and then it gets split into these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. These stories that we're reading are, are kind of taking place up in the north. And in this story, you have a set of protagonists and antagonists, uh, both humans and, human and divine. So the protagonists would be Elijah and the God of Israel. The antagonists, you have Ahab, this king of Israel, who is married a Phoenician princess, princess named Jezebel. And in Phoenicia, one of the gods, the patron deities is uh, Baal, sometimes also pronounced Baal, this storm god. Anything you want to add, Jeff? There's also a contest and a deepening division between the kingdom of Israel on the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. 
because now they're moving further and further away with it from Israel's God as they're trying to make alliances with mm. their neighbors to the West. Good. So in addition to a lot of this, you know, these kingdoms going on, there's some pretty interesting things that pertain to the story in regards to the climate at this time. Yeah, well, that and that plays directly into the conflict, right? So our chapters begin with Elijah acting as God's prophet, uh, sealing up the heavens, making it so it's not going to rain, right? For multiple years, right? If you believed in Baal or Baal, you're thinking that Baal brings uh, rain in the winter and then crops grow and then he's sort of bound cyclically in the summer and then he comes back to life again, right? And so Baal's just coming back every year to bring rain. And Elijah, through his prophetic power, is showing the world essentially, the, the known world at that time, uh, Baal's not in charge. We're shutting up the heavens, right? Who is the true God of the rain? Why are they gravitating towards this other God? Mm. Well, uh, I think uh, always the king, the leader, has a lot of influence on that. Mm. He's worried that they're gonna get overrun if they don't bond with the, the people a little to the west of them in Phoenicia yes. and build a new capital. So they're very worried about their uh, strength as a country, mm. whereas Elijah, is saying you won't have that strength if you don't follow the living God. Why is it you think that people tend to turn their hearts away from, from God um, and look for other sources of happiness? Eliza. Um, I just think like the church is so simple that people think that something so powerful, like God, he has to like talk to them in big, powerful ways they expect something so big, they miss the small things. And so they think they have to look for something bigger and they end up creating something bigger for themselves. That is so profound. That's, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because that is something we are gonna talk about today, how God speaks to us. There is a really profound story that revolves around the drought. I don't know if it revolves around it, but it has a, the drought has a lot to do with, with what happens next in, in the story of, of the widow of Zarephath. What can you tell us to help us better understand this story uh, as we dive into and whatever, as it pertains to sacrifice? Yeah, so the heavens are sealed by the power of the one true God. So it's not gonna rain for some time. And Elijah goes off into hiding and, is, uh, and, and ravens are bringing him food. And at some point, uh, the Lord tells Elijah um, that he's prepared uh, a widow to provide for him. Uh, what was the status and this time of a widow? It was a really, really tough thing. It's tough in our generation, but even tougher then. You had uh, uh, very few rights in the society. You, had, you were typically very poor. You had all the responsibility for your children. So that's why it was such a challenge to her to live in her circumstances. So if you look at verse uh, nine, for instance, arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Sidon. So he's saying, you're now going into Baal country, right? Uh, Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, 
but an handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Do we have any insight on how she views Elijah at this point? I read it as no, but as someone who's just doing that thing which is looked so highly upon in this culture, which is hospitality. I agree with Luke. I, I think she didn't have a clue what, a, what an important man he was. It's pretty shocking to hear what Elijah says to her next. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the transition from 12 to 13, that I may eat it and die, right? And Elijah said unto her, fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me therefore a little cake first and bring it unto me. And after make for thee and for thy son, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Remember, he's in foreign countries, in Baal country. Uh, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. She exercises this faith, this, this, this willingness to sacrifice. And she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meat wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. This is quite a sacrifice that she is making on behalf of somebody else. And Jeff, I would love to hear from you and your experience uh, serving in the Congo uh, a couple times. Uh, how did you see those that you serve sacrifice for the benefit of others? When I was uh, out in a remote part of the Congo and for a meeting with a tribal chief, uh, one day, uh, we took along a school teacher whose name was Alain, and I said, well, let's meet your family before we go out. And the idea went to my mind, I was gonna take a picture of each of their children one by one. So I started with the youngest here, and uh, he was a, quite a cute kid, and then another boy came out, I took a picture of number two, and then there was a girl, three, okay, and then along came another boy, and I took a picture of him, number four. And then I looked out the side of the house, and I saw the mother out there, and she was giving a bath to and uh, doing some wash for another little boy. And then I looked around. He had there that they were taking care of when we counted them all together, 10. Six of them were children that didn't belong to them biologically, but he, was, wow. uh, he and his wife were out of their own poverty and sacrifice taking care of those children who otherwise wouldn't have a home. And I guess it makes you appreciate um, that God has people all around the world who are in his work of doing good for his children and showing his love. So Elder Holland, uh, he talks about how sometimes doing the right thing, acting Christ-like, is not always easy. He says, Christianity is comforting, but it is often not comfortable. The path to holiness and happiness here and hereafter is a long and sometimes rocky one. It takes time and tenacity to walk it. But of course, the reward for doing so is monumental. Why do you think sometimes it's hard, even though we know blessings come from sacrifice, why do you think it is sometimes hard to sacrifice? Caleb. I think it's hard for us to sacrifice because a lot of the time the blessings take a little while for it to come, but mm. we want it to happen like right now, right here, right now. But it, the blessings come in the most unexpected ways most of the time and longer than we expect them to. But it's definitely worth it to sacrifice. So can you think of an example, Caleb, of when you have sacrificed something, maybe it was your time, or maybe even it was something material, and received a blessing for it? Well, in my family, every morning we have to get up at like 6.50 to read scriptures, so. Yeah, that could be a sacrifice, right? <laughs> Gotta sacrifice my sleep to read scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do you gain from that though, Caleb? 
doing that gives me more time to read the scriptures and understand the gospel more fully. What a great example. I think uh, the thing that makes it hard is Christ is always asking for change. I remember a story that C.S. Lewis used to tell about getting a toothache at night, and he'd want to uh, call his mother and get some medicine, some aspirin for his toothache, but he wouldn't do it because he knew that he'd get some relief from his pain, but she'd take him into the dentist the next day and he'd have to go through the whole routine. And he said God was a lot like the dentist. I think Elder Holland was kind of saying this, mm -hmm. that he's not just telling us to do something easy that we naturally do. He's telling us to change. My sense is the widow of Zarephath, Elijah, and all the players not only were edified by their experience and their sacrifice, but were changed by it because mm -hmm. they learned that when they made that sacrifice, God would bless them and they became new people. I think our heavenly parents want us to be like them. And I think that path is a difficult path embodied through Jesus Christ, who you read the New Testament, his mission leads him to a cross, right? It's Christ crucified is what precedes Christ resurrected. And so uh, our heavenly parents love us too much to let us stay the way that, that we are. With all of this, it really all does lead down to reminding us about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of details with this story, but I would just love to get some final thoughts, first from you, Jeff, and then Luke, uh, on this story of the widow of Zarephath. I think uh, that, in a way, sacrifice not only is the result of faith, but I think faith comes from sacrifice. She was able to make that sacrifice to think of, actually, Elijah got fed before her children, her boy did, and her uh, and herself. And then, as the scriptures say, after the tribulation comes the blessing. She was blessed. So I guess that makes me want to sacrifice more so my faith can grow. Thank you, Jeff. Luke? Yeah, I love that. Um, I love this story because it's a reminder that faith can be found in so-called unlikely places. The author of the Gospel of Luke loves Elijah and loves these stories. And Jesus is quoting this story in Luke chapter four, and uh, Jesus also uh, heals a widow's son in Luke chapter seven. And I think this is one of the principal themes that will be later in scripture, which is faith can be found in places that you may not expect. Thank you so much for your, your commentary. Thank you so much for your participation. This has been a great discussion on our first topic, an invitation to sacrifice. I think God speaks to me in a very quiet voice. Um, when I'm busy and doing a lot of things, it's harder for me to hear him. But when I take that time to um, spend time with him every single day, I'm able to hear him better in my life. I think Heavenly Father speaks to me when I remember to remember him. Like um, before I take a test, if I remember to pray that I'll be able to do, do well usually, um, he blesses me with that, or if I remember to pray before I go to school, then I have a better day. So I think when I remember to remember Him, then it, it helps me feel the Spirit more. So for our second topic, we're going to be discussing the Lord often speaks in quiet, simple ways. 
Now, this topic is specific to a chapter and story from uh, what we've been talking about today. Do you mind giving us a little bit of background? Sure, yeah. You get this contest where the question is which God is going to send fire down from heaven and uh, ultimately who wins out? The God of Israel. And it leads to the death of uh, hundreds of these uh, priests of Baal. Um, so you would think then that we won, right? The God of Israel won. Ahab and Jezebel are going to say, all right, uh, we give in, but that's not what happens. Uh, you get to chapter 19 and Jezebel essentially says, uh, you better run because we're coming after you. Like we're gonna do to you what you've done to us. And so then Elijah's in a panic and he then flees essentially for his life. Which is interesting because you'd think that after performing such a great miracle, you would all have, have all the confidence in the world that, hey, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And so I, we have a question coming from one of our viewers about Elijah's reaction to this, and I'd love to get your insights on it. Hi, this is Finesse from Austin, Texas. I have a couple questions. So in this story with Elijah, Elijah showed impressive faith and God gave him two great victories. God told him exactly what to do. He did it. God showed up. God showed out. But it seems like when Jezebel sent word that she was going to kill Elijah, Elijah started operating in fear. And that made me think of us today. So how do we know the difference between when we're operating in full faith or when we start operating in fear? What are your thoughts? I like what Antoine de Saint-Exupéry said one time. He said, faith is the doubt that forges ahead, sure to find the truth. And in mm. a sense, being full of faith doesn't mean you don't have doubt or fear. It means that you forge ahead regardless and you'll find eventually that God will confirm in his promises. Mm. Any thoughts, Lou? Um, in my mind, it, it kind of speaks to my soul, seeing someone who is... Uh, who has great moments of spiritual triumph, but then, you know, by verse four, you see a sense of failure and discouragement and, and fear. So let's get back to this. I, I'd love to see, like, how does this story play out? He's in hiding and he's feeling doubt and he's feeling discouragement and fear. You have this beautiful moment where an angel ministers to him and feeds him. Um, and then he goes on this journey where he goes to the mountain, the same mountain where God spoke to Moses. And it's here in this place, in this sort of cave where he's going to hear the voice of the Lord. Why specifically is the Lord talking to Elijah in this manner? What strikes me is he's in the same place where Moses was, and Moses also heard the voice of the Lord. And when Moses heard the voice of the Lord, it was a thing of power, and it was reminiscent of thunder and lightning. It seems to me that this so deliberately juxtaposes him with Moses, but then his experience with the Lord is not like Moses. So maybe one of the principles we can draw from this is that the Lord speaks to his children, but the way in which he speaks to them may vary from child to child. You know, I, I was just thinking about that while you were talking about it. You explained it so beautifully. I, we, we say the still small voice, but what did the voice say? He asked a question. He said, what doest thou here, Elijah? Isn't that interesting? You know, the Lord, he's seeking comfort. He gets the earthquake, he gets the whatever thunder, and, and then he gets a still small voice, and the Lord comes to him with a question. When the Lord asks questions, it's because we've got something to learn, and, and I think you should ponder that verse. Mm. I like what Elder Bednar has often said, uh, that the Spirit can come to us either like a light switching on, if some of you heard that, mm -hmm. or it can come gradual like a sunrise and almost like that still mm. small voice. He says that sometimes 
we're going to get a, you know, a bright light when we ask a question. And sometimes it's going to be hardly anything at all. But because we are living close to the Spirit and have the Spirit of the Lord with us, we just keep in that current and move forward gradually and we'll be led in the right path. I love how you said that. And it fits in really nice with a quote we have from Sister Matsumori. And she says, the scriptures and the prophets teach what the spirit feels like. My favorite description, though, comes from an eight-year-old boy who had just received the Holy Ghost. He said, it felt like sunshine. <laughs> it is important, I think, to recognize that we have to learn how to recognize that still small voice as one of the ways in which he speaks to us. And I'd love to hear from the audience your thoughts on why is it difficult at times to hear that quiet, simple voice from God. Drew. Well, in my life, I feel like there's so many things that compete for my time. Mm. And those things can distract us, whether it be social media or any number of good things that we could be doing that can keep us from doing the most important things. And as we kind of get distracted by some of those things, it makes it so that sometimes we don't hear those whisperings of the Spirit. You know, Drew, we've been given a charge recently by President Nelson to hear him. Are there some specific things that you do in your life to better hear him? Well, I think it all comes back for me to taking care of myself spiritually every day with, with reading my scriptures, with, with praying, and with having gospel discussions with my family. Um, those things help me to prepare myself to hear him. Thank you. So are there some specific things that you do uh, to hear the voice of the Lord, specifically if it's a still, small voice. John. I think we can learn from Elijah's example. And even Moses, you mentioned, they went to the mount. And we can go to the temple. And that is a real source for me to, if I'm really pondering about something, I can find answers and peace there. And the same um, at church, when you take the sacrament. If we take time to ponder and to really think about our lives and what we're doing and turn to the Lord during the sacrament, that can be a source for me to feel the Spirit, to hear that voice. So what sort of impact, John, has it had on your life to make time to hear the voice of the Lord more for you? Um, it's helped me. Uh, my kids will test me out a perfect father, but I think when I do take the time, it helps me be a better father, a better husband, better in my calling, it helps me in my job, everything. Um, when we take the time to listen, we can get the guidance. So sometimes I feel like the Lord tells me, kind of leaves it to me, maybe I'm not getting anything, and I come to him with the decision that I've made, is this right? And then I feel that peace, and then I can move forward. Thanks for your comment, John, really appreciate that. So this is not the only way the Lord communicates with his people, uh, but I think it's important to see that there is a pattern as to uh, why he talks to us sometimes in his still small voice, do we see other examples in scriptures that can possibly teach us why he does this sometimes? Yeah, I mean, one example that comes to mind is in the Book of Mormon in Helaman when uh, Nephi and Lehi are imprisoned, right? So they're in kind of like Elijah, they're in this terrifying moment mm -hmm. where they're, you know, facing oppression, right? And uh, 
when they're in prison, it says, uh, this is in 28, it came to pass that they were overshadowed with the cloud of darkness and an awful solemn fear came upon them and it came to pass that there came a voice as if, as if it were above the cloud of darkness saying, repent ye, repent ye, and seek no more to destroy my servants whom I have sent unto you to declare good tidings. And it came to pass that when they heard this voice and beheld that it was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of a great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness mm. as if it had been a whisper and it had pierced them even to the very soul. Uh, so very striking, very striking similarities in terms of someone in their time of need and God's voice coming in uh, to intervene. Uh, Jeff, uh, any examples from that you can think of? Yeah, I was thinking uh, uh, when Luke was reading that about 3 Nephi 11.3 when Christ comes and visits the Nephites and uh, talks about, again, it's, they've been through all kinds of terrible seismic events and other things, volcanoes and other things. And they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven, they cast their eyes about, and they didn't understand it. It was not a harsh voice, neither a loud voice, notwithstanding it being a small voice. It had pierced them that he did hear to the center, that there was no part of their frame that did not cause to quake. And it's interesting, it says they didn't heard the voice and they understood it not. Again, it reminds me of the experience of Elijah in that God didn't just want them to listen he wanted them to act. So he asked Elijah a question. Mm. Where are you? What are you doing? What are you about, Elijah? You know, are you acting out of fear or faith? Maybe it's part of, that's part of it. Here, he says, it says, they looked and they listened and they looked up to the source and then they finally understood it. Mm. So again, he's requiring something of them mm. to hear it. Thank you. You know, I, I relate it to being a dad, you know, and there are times when when I'm at home and I'm trying to get the attention of my kids, yeah. and, I'll, and I'll call out very loudly one of their names, right? And, and I don't know if you guys, if you guys do this, but sometimes my kids want to have a, a normal conversation, a floor, a whole floor apart. They're upstairs yeah. in their bedroom, I'm down <laughs> in the kitchen, and they're just yelling back and forth. Yeah. And, and I, re I remember, you know, there are oftentimes I'll just, I'll say, Desmond, come downstairs so we can talk. I'm not gonna have this conversation like this. And it's amazing what, as he comes down and he'll say, yes, dad, and then we'll just have a normal conversation. And I feel like it strengthens my relationship with him as opposed to just yelling orders and things to have a nice, quiet conversation. I have his full attention. You know, he has my full attention. And it really, I think it strengthens that bond. So I'm wondering if perhaps one of the reasons why the Lord speaks to us is so that we can draw closer to him mm. in those moments. And it becomes, I feel like it's a more intimate uh, conversation and relationship with him. Yeah, we really got to listen, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah and where I went, because I've been thinking about it too, <laughs> and uh, where my mind went was, you know, part of what scripture is trying to do is put words to phenomena that sometimes are beyond words. Okay. And I think this idea of a whisper, you think about when you whisper you whisper when you just have something just for you, right? Like, if I want you all to hear, I'll talk. But if I have something just for you, I'm gonna speak in a whisper. Right. So I think one thing that scripture might be doing when it refers to God's voice in a whisper, maybe, the many things that it's doing, is that it, it's inviting us to remember that there are some times where God is speaking just to you. I love that. Please, Chanel. So I've served a lot in primary um, in callings and one of the things that you learn as you serve and teach kids is that if you're in a big room with a lot of kids, you have to 
quiet down your voice because if you're if you're talking loud, they're going to talk loud. Right. Okay. And if you're talking quieter and slowing down and and really thinking about what you're saying to them and maybe slowing down and and quieting your thoughts a little bit too, um, they can sense that. Mm. And oftentimes they'll quiet down and listen. So are you able to use that same principle and when you are trying to listen for yourself to that still small voice? I have to really focus. Okay. And when I do focus on Christ and what, what he's trying to teach me, I'm able to know what actions I need to take with whatever goes on in my life. I really have to think about it and slow down and really work hard to listen because when I do, I'm able to get the answers that I need to guide me in whatever I need to do. Thank you for sharing that, Chanel. Vanessa, you had a comment. This conversation just really teaches me how deeply individual and personal our relationships with God are for each one of his children. Um, Because we each hear the voice of the Lord in such different ways, we can't compare the way that I feel the Spirit to the way that she feels the Spirit or receives answers to our questions or receives revelation. And the more we work and focus on ourselves and our own individual relationship with our Father, the easier it is to be able to hear him and be able to get the help that we need every day. What does that teach you, Vanessa, about the relationship that God is trying to have with you? I think that He is patient with me, and I know that He loves me first above everything else. And so all my failures and all of my shortcomings and weaknesses um, really don't matter in the end because I'm His daughter. And that I, as I try to trust Him, that trust will grow and my faith will grow and it'll be easier for me to follow the direction He gives me. Beautiful comment. Thank you so much. This has been a really good, I don't want to say conversation, I'll say experience. It's been really neat. I really love the spirit that we felt here today. I, I uh, felt, you know, beyond any things I've learned, and I've learned a lot from the commentary, the background, and the experiences that have been shared. I just feel some sunshine in my soul. Mm-hmm. I feel like I want to get out and listen better, and love more, and... Um, I guess, show my love more for the Savior to sacrifice. I, I'm so grateful for all that he's done for me, and uh, I hope that I can change so I can show my love more fully for him. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Jeff. Luke? You know, I was, uh, I've been moved by a lot of the comments that you all have made, and I guess I'm moved by the idea now just that, that Elijah heard God's voice um, in his time of turmoil, like in his time of desperation, right? In his time of fear, um, in his time of depression. Um, so that, for me, offers great hope that um, God will come to us in our, our times of need. Thank you very much, both of you. The audience, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion on the second topic. The Lord often speaks in quiet, simple ways. The Holy Ghost taught me about a lot about sacrifice. I think we heard a lot of amazing stories about people who um, gave up a lot for the Lord. One of the things I thought about was just sacrifice and how that strengthens your faith. And I, coming from that, I just want to make more sacrifices for the Lord. 
as you know, we were having the discussions in there that I need to do a lot more to um, think about others and um, and listen to the Holy Ghost about ways that I can reach out to others and, and be a better servant. Welcome to Footnotes, where we're going to dive in a little further into some of these chapters from 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19. And uh, I, I really want to go back to um, the story of the widow of Zarephath, because there's some details that we get, didn't get a chance to cover. And there's one thing I noticed uh, here within these, uh, this chapter, chapter 17, is there's this theme uh, that is, reminds me of, of Nephi and the go and do. Now we hear, uh, first starting with Elijah, he went and did, he arose and went, and then when he meets, encounters this widow, she goes and goes goes and does. She yeah. went and did, and so this just idea of going and doing, and uh, this reminder of what faith can lead to. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I hadn't noticed that, but yeah, that the, the parallelism between him going in five, and then her going, and then her going in fifteen, and and thinking of the difference in who the characters are, mm -hmm. right? The male uh, Hebrew prophet, uh, the female widow foreigner, right? And it's, uh, again, I know I say this a lot, uh, you can see why the authors of the Gospels, like the Gospel of Luke, uh, wants us to remember this story when he's uh, working with a group of uh, believers in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. You know, I um, really appreciate your highlighting that uh, go and do kind of principle. I, I love the scripture of James, and it just always resonates with me. I will show thee my faith by my works. You know, I, I think about some of the people I know in my ward who I'm not naturally, you know, don't have a lot in common and we're different ages or different interests or different backgrounds. But when we go out there and we're moving somebody in the moving truck, <laughs> we're working on the welfare farm or we're doing yeah. something like that, you just feel like one and, this, and, the, and the spirit just comes. I think inspiration comes in those situations too. I, I like what Elder Oak said, and I don't know if I can quote it exactly, but he said something to the effect that Revelation comes most often when we're on the move, or as one uh, mission president said, uh, 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 the Lord can't drive a parked car. Mm -hmm. But if we're willing to make that action of to go and do, like you guys were talking about, then uh, the Lord can direct us. And so when we left off from the story, they sit down and they, they have this meal um, together, Elijah, the widow, and her son. Yeah. But there, there's a lot more to the story that we can learn from. Yeah, it takes a devastating turn, and that starts in verse 17. It came to pass that after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And I was thinking maybe, Jeff, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what this means? I mean... Yeah, it's, it's too bad we can't read in Hebrew. <laughs> These stories are so rich and so beautiful, yeah. but no breath left in him. They use the word neshama, which has to do with you know, normal breathing. Mm. And then there's beautiful play on words about how Elijah restores not just mere breath, but the breath of life, nefesh, Ugh. his soul back to him. Wow. So he loses his physical breath, but in a sense, Elijah is restoring more than that. He's wow. restoring, in essence, his spirit back to him. Uh, it's very beautifully yeah, done. The, the literary things that are happening in here are so beautiful. And, and I think uh, mm -hmm. an ancient listener to this sort of story, I mean, uh, 
would just this this is a moment of high drama, right? You have a mm. widow, and she's been temporarily sort of saved, but now her son is now taken from her, right? And I think verse 18 is important. Uh, it says, she said unto Elijah, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And the mm. reason why I think that's important is because it, it gives us insight into some ancient conceptions of, of death and sickness. And uh, you see strands of this uh, in, in various places in Jewish scripture in the Old Testament, uh, where there is a belief that bad things happen because of a sin. It doesn't say what sin she's committed, but she believes that her son has been taken from her uh, because of sin. And uh, obviously to, today, we don't necessarily believe that. Yes, there may be things that happen to me in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, if I make a bad choice and I, it's very possible that I will reap terrible consequences because of a choice I made. Um, but no Latter-day Saint, I don't think, should believe that, you know, that every bad thing that happens to us is the product of sin. But you see this sort of built into this narrative. Um, and it's okay to remember that there are some worldviews that we just uh, don't necessarily accept anymore. Do you think it's a, it's a lesson, uh, too, uh, just kind of taking your thought one more further, that we ought not to say that we are blessed because of our righteousness always. That's what, a do, great do you think there's thought. some truth in that? Wow. That's right. That's a worldview we don't accept either. So uh, we have the story, the son dies, Elijah tells her, give me your son. Yeah. He takes a child. And you have this, this passage, he cried unto the Lord in verse 20 and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come in unto him again. It's beautiful, sort of wrenching, emotional, sort of ancient ritual of bringing, trying to bring this boy back to life. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child. This is the part I think, is this, are we referring mm -hmm. to the soul of the child that came unto him again? Yeah. And he revived. Really the, the breath of life. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, see, thy son liveth. And I love this story. I love how, you know, you see this kind of the, the turmoil this woman has gone through first with worrying about, am I going to be able to protect my son and feed him? And then she feeds him and then he passes away. Yeah. And she, it's, like, it's almost like she's taken back again. And I, I'm curious, I want to ask you about the last verse of chapter 17. Um, we know that we've been taught that faith precedes the miracle. Yet she says to Elijah, now, now by this, now I know that you are a, a man of God. Uh, I think you see this consistently throughout Scripture that uh, someone exercises faith and God does amazing things, and in other places God does amazing things, and people respond to His mm -hmm. amazing grace. There's this kind of a superabundance of mercy, isn't there? You know, he, he's not a he's not going to say, "Well, we'll give you just one smidgen more faith, and then yeah. we'll show you the thing." Yeah. You know, it, it's there's something of God's generosity in this, and I I guess when I read this story, I think. It really echoes the New Testament for me. Mm. We have a prophet in the mold of Jesus. Other prophets before, you don't get sort of the stories about miracles. You don't get the stories about him looking for the foreigner, the woman, the marginalized as much. But with Elijah, you really get that Christ-like prototype totally. um, coming into, uh, into play. You could really productively read Alma 32 mm -hmm. onto this. Okay. story, right? 
Alma 32, you plant the seed, you're exercising some faith. She has exercised faith, right? Yeah. She exhibits hospitality. I mean, that's where this all starts, right? She, she would, I mean, argue, arguably she would have lost her son no matter what, right? right? If he was sick. This all begins because she shows hospitality. Particle of faith. Yeah. So it's almost like she has, she's planted the seed, right? And then yeah. a little bit grows and then her son dies and she goes to the prophet and says, you know, help me, right? So in some ways she is exercising faith and, and the fruit you know, or the, the sort of tree is sort of growing so that by verse 24, she now has this sort of perfect that. knowledge that I've been exercising faith and now because of that, I see that the fruit is good, that the God of Israel is yeah. good because my son lives again. So even a tiny particle of faith precedes a miracle, you yeah, know? Right, right. Now there's another uh, aspect of these, these chapters that powerful messages, uh, literally and figuratively, as we look at these things, when we talk about the priests of Baal, yeah. and, and there's a lot going on here. It's not just at the moment, you know, because we, we, we come to this story in, in chapter 18, but there's a lot historically that is going on that really adds to, to this situation and what is happening. I mean, I think what 18 is doing when you have this showdown between uh, Elijah and, and the priests of Baal is uh, this is speaking to broader socio-political issues, right? Mm -hmm. uh, king Ahab uh, was a powerful king. King Ahab was a successful king. I mean, archaeologically, we see he had a lot of very successful building projects and, a very, and, and you can still find, see today like the archeological remnants of things that he built, palaces and with ivory. Um, and he was a shrewd political leader. Uh, mm. in, in, in marrying Jezebel, I mean, he's creating an alliance with Phoenicia. And this is a shrewd political thing to do. If you wanna keep out, you know, encroaching em empires, you know, it's good to have good alliances, yeah. right? So I think what you see happening in the showdown then is, uh, you can't unentangle it from sort of what's happening sociopolitically, right? You have a king who's being politically shrewd and you have a prophet saying to him, look, this shrewdness has gone too far, right? We have, in the name of political shrewdness, you've abandoned certain elements of your piety that you shouldn't have abandoned. I like, uh, there's a, a Bible commentator called John Robinson who says it this way. You have the Rechabites, who are a Jewish group that, basically eschewed all progress and eventually they died out. So they, they were willing to, to give up their future to hold on to the past. And in a sense, you could say Ahab was willing to give up his past mm. to assure a better mm. future temporally. Mm. Now, I don't think Elijah was against progress any more mm. than our current brethren are against progress, but they want to keep the values and traditions yeah. and um, faith of the past while moving forward into the future. You know, and we have this really amazing demonstration. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I, sure. I would love to just kind of paint this picture and, and get this set up in some details of this, this demonstration. Yes, good. So uh, let's start maybe start in verse 20. Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. You set the stage at this mountain, which is kind of between Israel and Phoenicia, right? Like, so it's sort of like center stage, you're on the mountaintop, so we're right on the border between both countries. Like this is the perfect place for a showdown between the God of Israel and the God, you know, Baal or Baal. Meet me right? at the flagpole at three o'clock. That's right, that's right, <laughs> right, right, exactly right. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the, and the people answered him, not a word. 
right? So they want to see. Well, let's see, let's see who wins the fight. Um, <laughs> then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the, and the God that answereth by fire... Let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. I mean, that's like dropping the hat. Yeah, I mean, you're right. like, hey, this is, we're, we're doing this right now. Right. He's just setting it up. Like, there's going to be no doubt. We are going to leave no doubt. There will be a winner after this contest is over. Yeah. By the way, I find the, the, the going back to the Hebrew interesting here when he says, uh, how long halt ye between two opinions? Another way to translate that is, how long hop ye between two crevices? You can almost imagine the mountain of Samaria where they are uh, and the mountain yeah. of, of the Lord in Jerusalem uh, and them hopping sort of between the God of, of mm. uh, Jehovah yes. and Baal. And then you can also see them when they're leaping on the altar. What verse is that? Verse 26. Verse 26. Yeah. They are hopping up on their altar. So it's a very <laughs> neat imagery yeah. of, of how silly uh, this halting and hopping is, is being for the people. And I think it's important to remember there is a logic to this contest, right? It's not just about, you know, this idea of fire from heaven, right? The, the question is like, who is the God of storms, right? Like mm. Baal is, is, is frequently depicted right. as holding this lightning bolt, right? So if he is truly the God of storms, yeah. just, just do, do your magic, throw the lightning bolt down and, you know, Strike, strike the altar. And uh, so there is a logic here. And, and you can see what's at stake. Who really does rule over life and death? Who really brings us water? Who do we have to thank for the bounties that we have? Okay, so they, they build these altars. Yes. But Elijah takes it a step further, right? Yeah. He's like, okay, let's, yeah, right. let's be very, very clear right. again. I want him this, that we're going to leave no doubt right. that there will be a winner in this contest. Yeah, he takes it, he does, he does two things. So first he lets them go first and, uh, you know, they give it their best, right? This is in 26, as, as you mentioned. They're, they're, like his mocking words yeah, right there. Right, so 26, the priests, you know, uh, they, they call on the name of Baal from morning even until noon. So hours are going by. Baal, hear us. There was no voice nor any that answered. Not even a still small voice. Not a still, <laughs> not nothing. It's, you know, that's zero, right? And then 27, you know, that's when Elijah starts to have a little bit of fun, uh, mocking them, saying, cry aloud. He's a God. Either, either he is talking or he is pursuing or he is in a journey or preventure he sleepeth and he must be awake. He's like, look, he's out doing something like maybe you got to yell a little bit louder, get his attention, right? And they cried aloud. They start cutting themselves. They're, they're engaging in some ancient activity that you would do to sort of, uh, get God's attention. A different yeah, kind of sacrifice, that. right? Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> I was wondering about that when I was reading this. Um, they, the, their behavior, are they, uh, is there a specific reason? I always thought of it as they're just so frustrated <laughs> and they just, like, you know, we use the term, they're ripping their hair out. Uh, like, what is going on? So are, what is the, the these, reason These behind? are ritual. These are yeah. ritual okay. actions to shed their own blood, yeah. as it were. This is one way to show your distress and okay. therefore uh, your deity might come to you if he sees you. Maybe pulling your hair out would be part of that. Right. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so obviously, as, as you said, you know, time goes by and, um, and nothing's happening. And this gets to exactly what you're saying. Elijah said, let's up the ante. Okay. Let me just, uh, for dramatic effect. Um, 
So 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid them on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. It was like, you know, like shooting free throws blindfolded, right? Like, like <laughs> spin me around three times and I'll still win this contest. That's right. <laughs> and the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So you can see there's, you know, it's even like ritually tied to like temple sacrifice. Mm. And he's maintaining sort of a sort of piety within uh, ancient Israel, the ancient Israelite system of religious practice and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Wow. It's a definitive victory, <laughs> right? We talk about a, a lot about Elijah. You know, you had mentioned earlier uh, just how great he was. Yeah. Elijah's an amazing prophet, and we still bring him up today. We, we hear about Elijah in the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm. What is his legacy? Why do we focus so much on him? Um, what is his lasting legacy going to be, you know, for us as Latter-day Saints today? Uh, I, I think he has multiple legacies, right? I mean, this is a figure who is... Uh, transformative in terms of ancient Israelite practice and imagination. He's taken up into heaven. This is unique, right? This mm -hmm. figure who's taken up by this chariot of fire like in, into heaven. And so I think uh, that is a striking detail um, in so much that you have Malachi then prophesying of mm -hmm. him coming mm -hmm. again. You know, his legacy shapes the New Testament Gospels, right? The New Testament authors, when they tell the stories of John the Baptist and then of Jesus Christ, in various ways, not often, not always in the same way, in various ways, they are echoing Elijah in the way that John the Baptist's ministry is, is gonna happen, the way that Jesus's ministry is gonna unfold. Um, and then, obviously, into the latter days. Maybe I'll pass the baton to you if you wanna yeah. keep running with that. So I think in the latter days, one of the things that came with the the restoration of the gospel is that we realize there's much more to his story than was in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, we get a prologue uh, back, if you go back to Genesis, uh, uh, Joseph's translation of Genesis, back to the book of Moses, verse uh, six, about the sealing power that came with the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood, which he used to seal the heavens in his day. And we also, in the restoration, get a uh, better understanding of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus spoke with Elijah uh, and Moses there and when he came to restore the priesthood. So the story that we get is of a power in the priesthood and an understanding of what that power is and what it means to us in the sealing ordinances that we have today that were restored in the Kirtland Temple in 1836. We just have a smidge of that story, but probably we have more to it than any other people have had, thanks to the prophet of the Restoration. You know, as I, as I look at this story, I can't help but think about, you know, how often we see the Lord making it very clear that He is our God. And so I started thinking in my own life, 
you know, how has he made it clear to me? And I w- I'm curious. I-, I would love to hear from you all. Uh, when has the Lord made it very clear that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob to you on a, on a personal level? Thanks for asking that question because uh, it's a question that I can answer and also I think connect to what we read in uh, 1 Kings 19. Okay. Um, for me, one of the more profound experiences that I had that I feel comfortable sharing is, is I was in high school and was, uh, had decided that I really wanted to know if there was a God and know if I believed uh, what my parents believed and what the tradition that I inherited. And um, so I spent a couple of months really seriously reading scripture. I read through all the Book of Mormon. I read through the Doctrine and Covenants. I was reading the Bible and uh, consistently praying and writing in my journal. And I did have uh, one experience uh, in my room in the basement where I can feel a still small voice that I still remember now. And it was, yeah, and it was evidence enough for me that uh, my God was my parents' God and that uh, I was on a a path that I wanted to be on. I love that. I love how you said that, that your God was your parents' God. That's a beautiful story. And it was a still small voice that you still remember. Totally. It doesn't have yeah. to be this grand, magnificent thing, but it was, it was what you needed at that time. It was what I needed. Yeah. That's right. Jeff. When I was on my mission, it comes to mind, uh, my dear mission president um, found out there was some of us that had never read through the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. So he said, tomorrow, you're going to cancel all your appointments, and all of you are going to read through the entire <sighs> Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't finished by midnight of that night, you're going to get up the next morning and continue till you finish wow. it. And I already had a great testimony of the Book of Mormon, but I have to say what was different about that experience, it was interesting that it passed like a panorama before my mind. It wasn't exactly like a movie, but I, I guess I need to read through them again to see the same thing. But I, those scenes became more real to me in that reading than they ever had before. That's the nearest thing I think I've ever had to a panoramic vision. And so... It, it may be something that if you're impressed to do it, I, to anybody who's listening, I, I'd say do it. I, it really was a great witness to me that God is our God. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the same God who spoke to me was the same God who was speaking to them. I just resonated with those stories and still do. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Uh, really, sincerely, this has been a wonderful experience uh, to learn from you. As we've talked about these two topics, an invitation to sacrifice, and the Lord often speaks in quiet, simple ways. Thank you very much for joining us at home. And we want to continue to invite you to listen to the voice of the Lord as He speaks to you, sometimes in that quiet, soft voice. But whatever way He communicates with you, we invite you to take courage in following through and listening to that voice. Thanks again. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.